We walk on holy ground once again today, our Lord. We will lift our eyes all the way up to heaven itself, where our Lord Jesus sits at your right hand, where he is our high priest. Oh, we pray you, send your spirit today to take these truths and bring them home with great power to us. Strengthen the weary, lighten the eyes of the despairing, awaken the slumbering, Glorify Christ in us. Oh, glorify Christ in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We look today at our great high priest's present ministry. There, I know one of the sermons that I preached decades ago, my, my wife most uh, remembers, is, uh, was about what the Lord Jesus is doing today. It turns out he's doing a lot of things today. A lot of scripture points to things that he's currently doing. This is just one of those things, a particular aspect of his high priestly ministry. We could spend so much time on it itself, but we're going to focus on specifically the ministry of, I'm going to hold that word blank for just a second. Last week as I was talking to you, we spoke much about the universal priesthood of all believers. Uh, Biblical Christians don't have priests. Biblical Christians are priests. And we have one great high priest. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is our one and only great high priest. So this turned my mind to thinking about Christ's high priestly ministry. Uh, There are many aspects of it. They're all wonderful. They're all absolutely glorious. But having last week spoken instruction, admonition, uh, encouragement, this week I turn to minister comfort from this verse as we look specifically on Christ's high priestly ministry of intercession. That's what goes in the blank. And that's what you see all the hymns have pointed to and will in our closing hymn as well. His high priestly ministry of intercession. He appears on our behalf as our mediator interceding for us before the Father. So let's just open this bit by bit. And as we do, we will be seeing yet again, and I can't say this to you strongly enough, and I'll never stop saying this to you, Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. Christ is not an important part of Christian faith. He's the center. He's the foundation. He's everything. He's the center of it. Everything radiates from Him. And everything that we are and hope for before God centers on Christ. Whenever you speak of Christ or speak your testimony, make sure that what you say is full of Christ and and full of His work, His person, His greatness. And here's just one aspect we'll be looking at today, bit by bit, savoring the sweetness and comfort of this truth. And first we're going to learn by its prefiguring sketched. That's Roman numeral one, its prefiguring sketched. What am I talking about when I talk about prefiguring? Well, a great part of our Bible is the Old Testament. Roughly about this much of it is Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of truth of God, historical reality, things that happen. And in that, the words of the Old Testament and the events and the institutions of the Old Testament all point forward to Jesus Christ in some way. They all either predict Him directly or they prefigure Him. Now what is it to prefigure Him? It's something that God has designed that has meaning in itself, but a meaning also that points forward to and finds total fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and one of those, of course, was the whole complex of worship. There was a building that God gave exact instructions for, the tabernacle, And every aspect of that in some way pointed to the person and work of Christ. And serving in that tabernacle was the office of the priesthood from the tribe of Levi, specifically the priest serving from among the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. And in their ministry, they point forward to Christ. The sacrifices point forward to Christ. So we're going to fix our attention particularly on one aspect of the high priest. There were many priests who served. As we just read, there had to be many because they kept dying. And there was turnover through death. Death rate was 100% then, just like it is now. And so there needed to be more and more priests to take their place. And at the top was the office of the high priest. The high priest had special responsibility and a special garment that distinguished him. That garment is described in Exodus chapter 28 uh, for beauty and for holiness. It was meant to set him apart, uh, which is what holiness means, set him apart to the ownership and service of God, You turn to Exodus 28 with me, please. And we'll look at verses 9 through 12. His garment distinguished him, and his garment 
told about Christ. Many aspects of it pointed forward to Christ. We're just going to look to one aspect as we see um, the high priestly ministry of Christ's intercession described in legal type. So that's the word that goes in that blank there next to letter A. Legal type. The type, again, is a foreshadowing event or institution or person God constructed to point forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ in some way. So, looking at uh, Exodus chapter 28, we see the garment of the high priest described, focusing on verses 9 through 12 for just one part of it. There was a, uh, let me just say, there was in this garment, there was a robe, then there was something like a poncho called an ephod that hung over his shoulders, and then over his chest was a garment folded in two called the breastplate of judgment. So this is what we're reading about here. So starting with verse 29, so Aaron, the high priest, shall bear the, uh, excuse me, what am I starting? I'm starting with verse 9. I went way too far. Sorry. Verse 9, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So here at the shoulder pieces of the ephod were two stones, on each of them six names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now what's, what's the symbolism there? Obviously the high priest is not acting in his own person. He's acting for the tribes. He's representing them. He's carrying them, as it were, as a burden. It's, it's put in the most pictorial and clear way. He bears them as a burden for what purpose? Verse 12 again twice. For a remembrance. That is, when he goes before the Lord to minister, and you see that phrase in verse 12 as well, before the Lord, he is bringing them up to him. He is taking their interests and their persons in before God and bringing them into the presence of God. Now let me add a little bit more before I, I finish. Uh, we see... Uh, that the names were also written on the, the uh, stones that he bore on the breastplate of judgment. There were as well 12 stones. Look at verses um, 17 and following. On this breastplate of judgment, you shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And then drop your eyes down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh. That is to be a remembrance before Yahweh continually. Now think of the imagery here. And it's emphasized, isn't it? In two ways he's carrying them before Yahweh. He's carrying them on his shoulders showing that he carries them as a burden. I don't mean a burdensome burden, but they're his to carry and support. And specifically, the text says that they're on his heart. And what is the heart? That's where we do all our thinking and our deciding. It's the center of our being. And so over his very heart, he carries one by one precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you know anything about the tabernacle, who could go into the presence of God? I remind you, the building is a, is a large rectangular building that has a building within it that itself is divided into two compartments. The whole building is holy. The building in the middle is called the holy place. But the most inner compartment was called what? The holy of holies or the most holy place. And there was the mercy seat. And there was represented the very presence of God. Now, all Israel who were clean, ritually clean, could come up to the tabernacle. Priests ministered in the tabernacle. Who could go into the holy place and the most holy place? 
only the high priest. And he could only go into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. So you say, well, then all Israel could not go before God. And yet they did in a way, did they not? They went and represented by their high priest. But notice this, this is worth emphasizing. They only got in hanging on him. They got in depending on him. They got in because he carried them and because he cared for them. He was on their shoulders to carry. He was on his heart to care for. So he didn't have his name on his uniform like like a baseball player. He had their names on his uniform. And the name of the player on the uniform tells you who the player is, but the names on his uniform tells you what? Who he represented, who he cared for. So he brought Israel in before the presence of God. To what purpose? What did the text say several times? For remembrance. In other words, constantly to bring them up to God, to represent them to God. Now, do you think uh, that that doesn't point forward to what Jesus Christ, our great high priest, does for us? Well, we just read that uh, it does in, in Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll see this in great more, in great more detail as we look at other scriptures. So there's the, the picture, the, the prefiguring of the high priestly ministry. Because when you read about Jesus as high priest in Hebrews, you really only understand what that means if you know about the Old Testament high priest, and now you do. And one of his aspects as a worshiper was he worshiped representing the congregation and bringing them on his person before the presence of God. So there it is described in legal type. Let's look at another scripture displayed in prophetic vision. Now this verse is a little, uh, book is a little harder to find. It's the book of Zechariah. So if you know your way around, turn there. If not, Take notes and take a look at it later. Don't, don't get lost looking for it. It's one of the so-called minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. So the book of Zechariah, we go to chapter 3. The prophet Zechariah is being shown a series of visions by an angel who's sort of guiding him from vision to vision. So what we're seeing here is not a historical uh, narrative. It is a symbolic vision. It has a real, well, it has real persons in it but it is meant to represent something. It is a prophetic vision, not an event. So let's, uh, let's read. Zechariah 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Now, notice this is not Joshua Moses' assistant. This is Joshua the high priest, a person who lived hundreds of years later. Showed me Joshua the high priest. So this is this high priest we've been reading about standing before the angel of Yahweh. So here he is representing the people of God in his person, in his office as high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Um, So interesting, fascinating picture here. The right hand is where the accuser stood. Satan is his accuser. So in accusing the high priest, he's accusing the people of God. Uh, That's what Satan does. He still does that. We read that in Revelation 12, that he accuses our brothers before God day and night. That's what he did. That's what he does. Uh, He accuses God to us, and he accuses us to God, you could say. He slanders both. But Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him, and, and you say, well, but he doesn't have anything to accuse of, does he? Oh, yes, he certainly does. We're going to read in a moment that Joshua is covered with disgustingly, repulsively dirty garments. And those, that, that filth represents iniquities. So he's got something to accuse Joshua of, but look at what unfolds here. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Yahweh said this. Where is Yahweh? I, I didn't read about Yahweh being there. Except, yes, you did. You may recall from a few weeks ago that we saw that this person, the angel of Yahweh, is the pre-incarnate Christ. He is one who is himself Yahweh and can speak of Yahweh. And that makes sense. It's odd otherwise for Yahweh to say, Yahweh rebuke you. But it makes perfect sense for Yahweh the Son to say, Yahweh the Father rebuke you. Do you see? And that's exactly what's going on here. So he's going to rebuke Satan. And what's he going to say? Yahweh rebuke you, he's not that bad. Yahweh rebuke you, your, your charges are trumped up, you're exaggerating, he's really a good guy. I'm sure he's trying his best. Yahweh rebuke you, he's going to do better next week, I'm sure of it. 
No, no, he can't because we're about to see in a moment. He's covered with iniquities. What does he appeal to? Oh, he appeals to, the, to election. He appeals to election by sovereign grace. What does he say? Yahweh rebuke, rebuke you. Yahweh who has chosen Israel, who has elected Israel, who out of all the tribes on the earth has elected this nation to be his. All the nations of the earth. Yahweh has chosen Israel rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked? And the LSB better translates that uh, delivered, I believe, from the fire. He appeals to their election and their salvation. They've been chosen and they've been delivered from the fire. Now notice, as I say, it isn't that Satan had no grounds for accusation. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now literally the Hebrew text says dung-spattered garments. They're covered with dung. So he was dirty, he was disgusting, and he stank. This is the high priest whose garments we read in Exodus 28 were for beauty and glory. And now they're spattered with dung and they're filthy and they're disgusting. And what's done for that? A very beautifully, deeply symbolic act. Verse 4, the angel, and who's the angel? The Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh the Son. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. What does that represent? What does that signify? We go on to see. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Well, what do we see there? We see the two elements of salvation, which is forgiveness of sins and imputation of righteousness. Your iniquity is taken away, but we're not left neutral and empty. Clean garments are put on, which represents the imputation of righteousness. To read in, in seed form in Genesis 15:6, Yahweh believed, I'm sorry, Abram believed Yahweh, and what? It was counted to him as righteousness. So when God saves a person who believes savingly, he forgives his sin and he imputes righteousness to him. And so does he here. Takes away the dung-spattered garments and puts on clean garments, and there's more. Verse 5, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of Yahweh was standing by. Well, he keeps saying that, keeps reminding us. The angel of Yahweh is right there. Why? Because this is typifying the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is that angel of Yahweh. So look, what does he do here? He puts a clean turban on his head. He's forgiven his sins, taken the dung-spattered garments off. He's imputed righteousness, put on clean garments, and now he sanctifies him. Where do I see that? That word's not in that text. Well, he puts a clean garment. What does he put on his head? What's that word there? Turban. It's a turban on his head. On the turban that the high priest wore, does any of you Bible scholars know there was a plate on it, a golden plate, and something written on that plate. What was written on that plate? Uh-oh. So uh, maybe that'd be a good thing to do in Sunday school, do Exodus. But um, what was written on the plate of the high priest? Holiness to Yahweh. Holiness to Yahweh. So he has forgiven his sins, he's imputed righteousness to him, and he sanctifies him. Marks him as holy. This is a picture of salvation. But this is also a picture of the mediatory work of Jesus Christ, of His intercessory work. Because here we have the accuser, the prosecuting attorney against the people of God, and Jesus intercedes and secures salvation. This is what we just saw. Salvation. Forgiveness of sins, imputation of righteousness, sanctification. All at the request of the Lord Jesus Christ in His imputation. This is a prophetic, prophetic vision that uh, is meant to point us forward and prepare us to see what the Lord Jesus Christ would do when He came. This is a glorious picture already, but let's see how the New Testament opens up more of it for us. Number two, we've begun to marvel and worship uh, at its prefiguring. Now let us uh, marvel and worship at its perfections seen. Roman numeral two. We've seen its prefiguring sketch. Now let's see its perfection scene. And the first, I just want to do a 
far too brief tour de force of his utter beauty and fitness. And this is something one even despairs to try because the most eloquent tongue and the deepest theologian can't begin to do justice to the beauty and fitness of Christ. And you don't have before you either of those. And yet one does what one can with the Word of God. The Word of God depicts this for us. We're all going to start with these uh, verses coming from the, uh, the book of Hebrews. His utter beauty and fitness. Beginning with Hebrews Two. Let me say, if you're a man and you haven't been coming to the men's fellowship, do. And uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful tour. It's something worth investing yourself and, and working hard to understand the, the beautiful uh, portrait of Christ in this book. So, hope uh, you're now in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll start by looking at verses 17 and 18. Now here, he's talking about he has, he has spoken of Christ's superiority to angels and the fact that he does not take on the nature of angels. He takes on the nature of a descendant of Abraham. And uh, verse 17, we read, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So, this is very like what we were reading in um, Philippians, wasn't it? Why Christ became man, who existing in the form of God, did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a man, and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross as a slave. Well, this is that same reality viewed from another angle, So, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Well, he had to only because God planned to redeem sinners. Because God had a plan from eternity to redeem those he selected, he elected, he chose from their sin by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to do that, as we saw, he had to take on human nature. It was human nature that caused the problem. It had to be solved by human nature, and yet none of us could do it because we're all part of the problem, basically. So it would take someone of infinite value and of unparalleled purity and worth. And this is what he does. But look at the way he does it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, we would be well served if he, if he became an adequate high priest. We'd be well served if he became a competent high priest. And yet, it's God's desire and it's the Son's desire to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, aren't these wonderful qualities? I mean, yes, what we most need is that he can do the job, but he does it with mercy and he does it with faithfulness. What, what is mercy? Mercy is that quality that sees misery and is moved by compassion to relieve it. That that sees a person suffering and must act to relieve that suffering. And this is the kind of high priest he is. Not simply one who can diagnose the cause of of misery, but one who is moved by it and moved to help in misery. But not only merciful, faithful. this, This quality is everything. Everybody drops the ball sometime. The best pastor has dropped the ball. The best priest has dropped the ball. But not this one. This one you can count on. You can have faith and you can trust to do everything that is needed for the people he serves. A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The people are the people of God. God's elect. He makes propitiation for them, which means what? We've seen propitiation is that sacrifice that deals with the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and sin of men, we see in Romans 1.18. And it's a propitiation that deals with that just and holy wrath. It's a propitiation that He makes for the sins of His people. Kind of makes me go back to Zechariah 3, doesn't it? Where, where Joshua is indeed covered with dung, and yet those iniquities are forgiven. And the wrath do them is turned aside. But look on verse 18 again. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now we'll see this again, but notice that part of his qualification for being the marvel of a high priest that he is is not that he went to the finest university. Well, in a way, he did. 
but not what man would regard as the finest university. And it's not because he went to the most prestigious, prestigious seminary, although he did, but not what man would regard as the most prestigious. His, his resume, his curriculum vitae, is not uh, bespeckled with uh, journal articles and books and dissertations. What is it that he did in preparation for his office? Well, he suffered. That's what he did. Verse 19, 18. He, because he himself suffered when being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Lord Jesus, who existed in the form of God, emptied himself by taking on the, the likeness of us and became a slave and humbled himself. And in taking on that nature, he exposed himself to temptation. He exposed himself to temptation the like of which you and I, I can say confidently, have never felt. Because what, what do we feel in temptation? Let, let's think of temptation's possible range as being so. With this being a mild temptation, this just being, there are no words, temptation. <laughs> so, what, what happens with most of us if we're honest? With most of us, we, we maybe the needle goes up about like this. And then either we bail or God takes mercy on us and delivers us from it. Right? We either buckle and give in to the temptation or God is merciful. Maybe sometimes the needle goes up here because we can only take so much. What happened with the Lord Jesus? Every temptation. All the way. Because His ability was limitless and because He never bailed, He never, he never buckled, He never failed. So every temptation he felt to the very last degree. He suffered. And for that reason, he's able to be a merciful. So we, we have a high priest who doesn't just know what it's like to have weakness such as we have and to have suffering such as we have simply because he knows everything. I mean, that's a good thing. God knows everything. But it's not just that. He knows these things because he's felt them. Because he took on human nature and he still has human nature. Jesus Christ still is perfectly God and perfectly man in one person. This is something we studied fairly closely from Philippians. And so we see this here in the glory of his office as high priest. He was made like his brother that he might propitiate for our sins, which required a human nature, and that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. Look at chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 next. Since then we have a great high priest, the writer says. Well, I just need to pause right there. That's an interesting expression, a great high priest. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the, the literal expression that Hebrew uses for the high priest is great priest. When we read high priest, the Hebrew text literally says great priest. And then there's a Greek word for high priest. And the writer here combines both ways of describing. He calls him a great high priest. Which kind of triggers in, this, in my mind the thing I always think. I, I don't usually say, but I think I always think it. When somebody tells me that he's a great-grandfather, I always think, what makes you such a great-grandfather? Of course, it's not what he meant. But in this case, we speak of a great high priest. What makes him such a great high priest? Oh, he would love to tell us. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Where did the Aaronic high priest pass through? He passed through the veil. How many times? Once a year. Into what? The symbol of the presence of God. Where does our high priest go? He passes through the heavens. Where? Into the very presence of God, which is represented by that tabernacle, but this is the reality. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, never stop admitting that you believe in Jesus Christ, admitting out loud that He is your Lord and Savior. Why? Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Sympathize means to feel with or even to suffer with. He feels the pain of our weaknesses. He feels it because he has shared and still shares our nature. This is our high priest. He's not a robot. He's not an android. He's not an angel. He's God incarnate able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every category of temptation he's known, but in his case, as I say, 
Every time he drank it to its depths and did not buckle, did not sin. Where our first head, Adam, sinned, he never did. Yet without sin. So, I, I, you know, it's taking a lot of restraint for me not to, to talk about the surrounding verses and stay with what we're focusing on. So I will re- resist the temptation right now to go on and, and move with you to Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 through 10, as we read more about uh, the wonder and the beauty and the fitness of our great high priest. Although he was a son, this to me, if I had to pick the most amazing verses in the Bible, this would be in my top 10 always. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Or I might translate it, son though he was, kaiper on huios, son though he was, he learned from what he suffered, obedience. A little more literal. Obedience meaning uh, submission. And once again, this points us to the school that our Lord Jesus went to. Uh, Not an Ivy League school, but the school of suffering. Charles Spurgeon said so well, God had only one son without sin, but no son without suffering. Even God the Son incarnate suffered. And so he... uh, We read in verse 8, he learned submission through what he suffered. He did not just learn the dictionary definition of submission. He did not just read stories about what it was like for other people to submit. A lot of us do this. A lot of people who go to seminary do this. We write books that describe it to us. But he actually went into it. And remember, submission is only submission when it crosses your interests and your preferences and your ease if it's not that, then it's just serendipity. It's a happy coincidence, you know. A wife doesn't have to submit to her husband when he says, let's go get some ice cream. Yeah, I'll submit to that. <laughs> That's not submission. Submission doesn't come in when it's something you want to do anyway. Submission is when it's something difficult, painful, costly, and that you might not have picked. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Those words are familiar. So, he learned submission through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source, or I would translate the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The scriptural portrait of salvation traces all causality to God. Traces all causality to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey him, including uh, of their obedience being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he learned submission through what he suffered and is the source of eternal salvation to us. That's his high priestly ministry to us. And it's of the nature of the order of Melchizedek. As we read, not of the order of Aaron. Jesus couldn't have been an Aaronic priest. Why not? What tribe was he from? Judah. And there's no priests from Judah. Nevertheless, he is a high priest. What kind of priest? Not an ironic priest, but one like Melchizedek, like this Gentile we read about in Genesis chapter 14. We're not told his mother or father. He's not from the nation of Israel, obviously, which didn't exist at the time. And yet he's a priest of the Most High God. And he comes, Genesis 14, and he blesses Abram. Abram tithes to him. And then he just vanishes off the narrative. We don't see him get born. We don't see him die. He comes and he goes, but he makes this big mark. And then uh, hundreds of years later in, in, in Psalm 110, Yahweh swears about Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Aaron? No, Melchizedek. And then Hebrews makes a great deal very truthfully about this. That's the kind of priest he is. So now this concluding uh, praise explosion in chapter 7, verses 26 through 28 after our, our target verse, verse 25, about he's being able to save to the uttermost. But verses 26 through 28, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up a bull, a goat, himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, that oath, the Lord has sworn, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, 
the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I'm just always struck by these words in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Oh, I dare say it was. (laughs) It was fitting. What this is telling us is that Jesus Christ is just just the sort of high priest we need. He is exactly who we needed to be a high priest. Well, couldn't we have had an android be more uh, efficient? Well, I suppose maybe, but he couldn't have atoned for our sins. Could we have had a goat or a bull? Well, no. It wasn't a goat or a bull that plunged the planet into, into sin and corruption and decay. No, it had to be a man. Well, couldn't have been a fine man? There is no fine man who isn't born under a death sentence. We're all born to the sin of Adam. All naturally born men and women. We're all born with our own debts. We can't pay the debts of others. No, we need one like this. And he's the only one like him. He's exactly who we need as our high priest. He is in himself holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That is in his, although we've seen he's merciful, we also see, and he's able to sympathize. We also see that in his character, he's not stained by what stains us. He's not corrupted by what corrupts us. He's not caught up into the same chain of, of guilt and sin and rebellion. He and his character is spotless and perfect. And we also read, he is exalted above the heavens. So he, ex- he is at the right hand of God, the place of ultimate influence. And he's there for us because he is there as our high priest with our names on his heart and on his shoulders, appearing before God for us. And he doesn't need to atone for his own sins as all human beings do. I mean, a lot of people like me, we, the, you ask us who our favorite kind of theologian is, we would say dead ones. Because you know what their course ended up as. You, you know what their life was. I admire Charles Spurgeon because I know the whole course of his life. He died with the faith that he bore through his whole life. But there are some others I could name, some of them living, who did not, who fell, who when pressure came on, buckled, uh, gave in, showed that they're not, they don't have spines of steel, they have spines of jelly. They're way, 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 way too fond of the uh, like and the respect and the affection of the world. Uh, but not the Lord Jesus. His character is, actually, is absolutely perfect. And He is exactly who we need. He meets every one of our needs before God. Well, think about this. I, I, thinking about this, I was thinking, well, could I, could I say it this way, that He was designed with us in mind? And immediately I thought, no, that's not true. That's backwards. What does Colossians 1.16 say? Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created through Him, that is through Jesus. All things have been created through Him. What's the next three words? And for Him. And for Him. He's not designed with us in mind. We were designed with Him in mind. We were created for His purpose. Uh, But that sin ruined, corrupted, disfigured that. Sin killed us. Sin ruined everything. So what we need now is, well, we need redemption. Oh yes, there. By the the, the plan of the triune God, there He is exactly who we need. He's exactly who we need to atone for our sin, to answer for our guilt, to meet the law's demands that we failed to, to satisfy righteousness, to satisfy the holy, just wrath of God. None other could do this. Only He does this. So yes, I dare say, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a a high priest. In His role as Redeemer, everything He is and does perfectly suits our needs. And this is why lost people are so lost. We all need the same thing. What is the same thing that we all need? Forgiveness. Redemption. Reconciliation to God. Where can we find those things? In civic activity, in self-esteem, in, in man-made religion, and philosophy? No. But we sure try because we all have those same needs and we're all trying to fill them and there's only one place where those needs can be filled and that place is not a place. It's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He and He alone is exactly who we need. So, we see His perfections exhibited in His beauty and fitness as our great High Priest. We also see His perfections put into action in various wonders. I'll trace a sampling for you in letter B. In our, number one, conversion. Letter B, we see His perfections put into action in our conversion. Yes, even our conversion, certainly our conversion, absolutely our conversion, traces back to the high priestly ministry of Christ. We're going to see that in Isaiah 53, verses 5, 8, and 10 through 12. All that's on your outline. Now, I'm going to start with verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, there's where I'm going to fix our attention and emphasis. He makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what I want to point out because this is his high priestly ministry of intercession. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Who are the transgressors? They're unsaved people. They're the lost. They're people who don't know God yet. How do I know that? Well, go back up in the, in the chapter. Now we'll go back to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Our transgressions is what separated us from God, and that's what he was pierced for. And you see through this hour, 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 because there is a people God elected and gave to Christ to save, and he came and did everything that was needed to assure everyone of their salvation. That's what we read here and, and all over the place. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And then look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? As his ministry was to make full atonement for all the sins of his people. Remember, the high priest did not carry on his chest the name of Egypt. Uh, he didn't carry on his shoulder the name of Assyria. He carried on his self the names of God's people. And this is the ministry of the, of the Son. He was stricken for the transgression of my people, the things we did that brought God's judgment on us. Verse 10, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. As we saw in recent weeks, the plan of God involved God designing the ministry and the mission of the Son and making promises to the Son that when he does what the Father sends him to do, God will give him. It will assure and it will accomplish and it will make certain, certain events, certain results. And those apply to his people, the people for whom he poured out his son, his soul, pardon me, for which he poured out his soul, that he would see his offspring, his, speed, his, his seed. He didn't die not knowing if his death would save anyone. He died knowing exactly for whom he died and what exactly he was securing for them. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied uh, he will account many righteous as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he was numbered with transgressors and he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So his atonement covers their transgressions and then he prays for them that that atonement be applied to them. In other words, he does what the Father sent him to do to assure the redemption of all of his people, and then he asks his Father to apply it. And you say, well, that's odd. Why does he ask it when the Father promised it? Because this is the way God works. Because God delights for us to take his promises to him like checks and to say, here, please do what you've promised to do. Don't we read exactly that in Psalm 2? God says to the Messiah, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. But wait, he promised the nations as his inheritance. Yes, and he's pleased for the son to ask for it and to give it when he asks. So what do we do when we pray? When we pray at our best, we take the word of God and say, you promised to give me peace that surpasses understanding. I need that peace, peace, please give me what you promised me. You asked me that you would never, you promised me that you would never leave me or forsake me, that you would uphold me with your righteous right hand and help me. I'm asking you to do that. 
and so forth. We bring God's promises to him, and so does the Messiah. God promises that by pouring out his soul to death and being crushed for the iniquity of his people, he would secure their salvation, and so he intercedes and asks God to apply that. We see that again in his actual high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Turn there with me. Here is an example, although on earth, not in heaven, but of the way Jesus prays for his people. John chapter 17, the real Lord's Prayer. Not the one we pray about forgiving our trespasses, which Jesus didn't pray, but this is the one Jesus actually did pray on the eve of his betrayal and his crucifixion. He prays this. He lifts his eyes up. He prays in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's a subset of all flesh that the, God, the Father elects and gives to the Son, and to every one of those he gives eternal life. And what is eternal life? Verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Which is the essence of saving faith. This is not something he gives us in reward for our believing in him. Our believing in him is because he gives us this. Our faith is a result of the saving work of God, not its cause. We're given to Christ to give eternal life to, and he does. And here he prays for us. It goes on in, in verse 6. Notice he says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They are a subset of the world given to him by the Father. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. So there is the result. He's given them eternal life. They've come out of the world in faith. And they're still with him. And they're going to be with him. Notice he makes this even clearer in verse 9. Rather a shocking verse. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. The world's names are not on his chest. He's not praying for the world. He's praying for the ones who God gave him. Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And not just them, if we were to think of, okay, well that's great for the apostles. But now look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's not the world's high priest. He's the high priest of the elect. He wins their salvation. He accomplishes it by his work on his cross. And he intercedes for them that that work be applied. And how is that work applied? Turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Another section, I'll have to control myself because it's a wonderful passage and a wonderful letter. But we will just look at verses 5 and 6. So Paul here is speaking of how God, though we're all lost and we're all enemies of God, hateful to each other, hating God, yet God saves us. In verse 5, he says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Oh, okay, you see, I see that then. It's God the Father who saves us. Amen. God the Father saves us by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we've seen a number of times, uh, we're not born again because we believe. We believe because we're born again. God gives us new life, and that new life believes in Jesus, chooses Jesus, sees Jesus, flees to Jesus. God is the cause of our new life. God is the giver of this new life. So you say, amen. I don't see the intercession of Christ there, though. What, what does he have to do with it? Well, read on. What does it say? Whom he poured out on us richly. What are the next words? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What's that shorthand for? Through the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. The Jesus, one of the, among the many things promised to Christ as a reward for his death on the cross was the gift of the Holy Spirit to the elect. And so having fulfilled the work of the Father, the Son goes to the Father and intercedes that God would send the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to glorify him, to open the eyes of the blind and the lost that they might come fleeing to him. And he does that. So why are we saved? We're saved by God, the Father. Amen. How are we saved? We're saved by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Why does that happen? Because the Son asks for it. Because He won that on the cross. He achieved that. He accomplished that. He assured that on the cross. 
So he's given to us by the intercession of the Son. So our conversion is a wonderful fruit of his intercession. Secondly, our sanctification. Much more briefly, I'll just, oh boy, you have to start listening a lot faster. I'll have to start disciplining myself a lot more. Our sanctification, John 17, 17. We've heard this many times, but think of this as the intercessory prayer of Christ. What does he say? He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what our high priest prays for us. He prays that we be sanctified. What does that mean? Made holy. What does that mean? That we be set apart to the ownership and service of God. So what does that mean? It means that Christ is praying for every aspect of our Christian life and growth. That's what sanctification is. When I grow in my understanding of the Word of God, that's part of sanctification. When I imply the Word of God to my life, that's part of sanctification. When I say no to my fleshly lusts and desires, that's part of sanctification. When I see the Lord Jesus more clearly and love Him and and pray with more ardor, well, that's part of sanctification. Every trace of the reality of the Holy Spirit, every fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, Christian, is yours because Christ prayed for it for you. Because he intercedes for us that we be sanctified. Sanctification. Next, restoration. I will just read these to you to save time. Uh, but do look them up. Luke twenty-two thirty-one through 32 Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And when pastor says, Peter said, you said no, right? <laughs> Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's all plural. But then he speaks in the singular. But I have prayed for you, for thee, for Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Notice the phrasing? Not if you turn again, when you turn again. Peter would fall. Did Peter fall? Yes, he did. Did he turn again? Yes, he did. Why did he? Because he was a really good guy, right? Because his high priest prayed for him. And because the father does not say no to his son. So, I've prayed for you. When you turn, strengthen your brothers. Another wonderful verse that's worth another hour in itself. But 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Indeed, he does. He shows how God's forgiven us of sin. He's given us a new nature. He's shown us that we need not sin and we should not sin. And a child of God does not give himself over to sin. But what are his next words? His next words are, But if anyone does sin, because he knows sadly we do. We need not, we should not, but we do. And is it all over when we sin? Is that the end? Oh no, he goes on and he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's that? We've got a a defense attorney? We've got somebody who stands there for us and makes intercession for us? Well, yes, we've seen that, didn't we? We saw that in Zechariah 3, very vividly. Who is that? John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's all of his qualifications. He's Jesus, which means salvation. He's Christ, which means he's prophet, priest, and king. And he's the righteous, meaning he's got the best case to plead. He's our righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And not just us here in Asia Minor, but any believer anywhere. He's the only propitiation. He's the sufficient propitiation for all the sins of all God's people. Well, we do sin. We do stumble. We do stupid things. Have you ever sinned, stumbled, done stupid things? Well, that depends on if you've been a Christian longer than a second. If you've been a Christian longer than a second, yes, you've sinned, done, stumbled, done stupid things, said stupid things, said things you wish you hadn't, said thing, not said things you wish you had. This is, this is our history. And yet here we are still believing, still worshiping, still clinging to Christ. Why are we? Because Christ intercedes for us. Because our high priest intercedes for us. And that is why we're restored. And that's why that forgiveness is applied to us. Because our high priest continually, we continually need him, and he continually intercedes. Every case of our being brought back from sin or folly is because of an answer to the prayer of our great high priest. Fourth, preservation. Oh boy. Romans 8.34, in in a wonderful section, one of the questions he asks, who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. No, just stop right there. What he's saying is if Jesus died for you, you'll never be condemned. If Jesus died for you, you won't go to hell. If Jesus died for you, you will be saved. What does he say? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now you see, he died for us and intercedes for us. And this is what brings us to repent of our sin and believe in him and cling to him. And it's also what keeps us. Now, think of Joshua standing before the angel of Yahweh. Did he have sin? Yes, he did. Could he have been condemned if he'd left in his sin? Yes, he could. And yet there was one there to intercede for him. It's not, we're not saved because Jesus is standing before God saying, I don't think they really meant to do that. That's not how he intercedes. How does he intercede? He intercedes by like we just sang, five, ble- five wounds he bears received at Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They plead for me. He points to his finished work. He doesn't intercede for us to secure for us something we don't have. He intercedes to it for us on the basis of what he has accomplished. And he points to his perfect redemption and his perfect atonement and his perfect salvation. And that's what he pleads for us. Like, like the uh, angel of Yahweh says in Zechariah 3, this is Jerusalem has been chosen by God and delivered from the fire. And so he pleads for us. This, this is my beloved for whom I shed my blood and freed from his sins and made him a part of the kingdom of priests. This is my beloved. Hebrews 7.25 now, our, te- our target verse says, consequently, he is able to, the, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yes, he always makes to live intercession to apply the fruits of his once for all perfect atoning death. He ever lives to make intercession and that's why he can save us to the uttermost. Wonderful words, esto panteles. How do you translate that? It's hard. It means to save us to the uttermost. It means to save us completely. I would probably translate it to save us all the way. His salvation doesn't get us right up to the brink of heaven and leave us there and say, I hope you can make the last couple of inches then we would none of us be saved. If there were anything, can you not say, that, say amen to this from the bottom of your heart? If there were any part of salvation that was ultimately left to us, we would none of us be saved. Amen? Salvation is of the Lord. And he ever lives to make intercession for us and will save us completely, all the way to the uttermost. And so why are we preserved? Because we're such strong people? Because we have such iron wills and such good hearts? No, because we have a great high priest who intercedes for us. Finally, glorification, John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. That takes everything in, doesn't it? That we would end up in glory. He prays that we would end up in glory seeing his glory. So that means that everything that it will take to get us there is included in that prayer. When I say, if were I to say this, oh, you know, once I took my son Jonathan to Fredericksburg. Uh, so I said, we're going to go to Fredericksburg. Now, did he then have to say, well, will you let me get into the car? Or will you pull out of our driveway? Well, will you drive north up our street? Or will you go up to the 290 or down to the 10, whichever route we take? Well, will you head west? You didn't have to ask me any of those things, right? Why? Because I said, let's go to Fredericksburg. If we're going to Fredericksburg, well, then we've got to do all those things. And if Jesus prays that we're going to get to glory, well, will he bring us to conversion? Will he keep us? Will he sanctify us? Will he protect us from the wiles of the enemy? Will he guard us as a precious jewel? Well, that's what it takes to get us there, so yes, he will. Yes, he will. And God will grant that because his son asks it. So everything, my conversion, my sanctification, my preservation, it's all included in the intercession of my great high priest. So last, I just want just to relish this a little bit, like with a savory piece of meat, just to chew and chew and appreciate it more and more. Uh, Roman numeral, um, where are we? Is this two, three? It's preciousness relished. And 
too briefly, but, but just a little bit more. It's preciousness relished. This verse, consequently, because of everything that he said about Christ's high priesthood, consequently, he is able to save all the way those who draw near to God through him since, here's why, since they, nothing, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he saves us all the way, and this intercession is based on nothing in us, nothing we would do, nothing we did do, and nothing we will do. His intercession is based only on what he did and on who he is. Oh, if any part of it depended on me, the whole is lost. But every part of it depends on him. So the whole is sure. His intercession it rests on his perfect work. And it's individual. He, he, he prays for us. He saves us to the, not just a body that we get ourselves into on our own. Some people have this concept that Jesus didn't actually die to save people. He didn't redeem anyone in particular. He, 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 would, he died to sort of make salvation possible, you know, to kind of put it out there. But it's, it's up to us to get into that cloud of, of salvation somehow. This is not the way, as we've seen again and again, this is not the way Scripture uh, depicts it. Uh, it's not a matter of that the, when, when God looks at His redeemed, He says, oh, well, look who decided to turn up. What a pleasant surprise. I had no idea that you'd be one of my children. No, God selects us and gives us to Christ to save, and Christ does all He need do to save us. And so when He intercedes for us, He's not saying, I intercede for my people. Fill in their names later yourself. I don't know who they are. He, he, he prays for Bob and Jane. He prays for Abdul and Juan. He prays for, for each person by name because what does he say in John 10? I know my sheep and I call them by name. And he prays for us by name. He knows you and he knows me and he knows our quirks and our weaknesses and our peculiarities and our weaknesses and he prays for them in his infinite knowledge and his infinite mercy. He prays for us. He knows what a wreck we are and what a wreck we would be apart from Him. And He prays for us. And it's unceasing. There is nobody who prays for you unceasingly other than the Lord Jesus Christ and, and God the Holy Spirit as well. Another sermon for another day. But God the Son pray, prays for us unceasingly and unendingly. He will not die one day and stop praying. He's already died and He will live forever. It is comprehensive. It takes in everything we need. It is compassionate. It's born for His care and concern for our well-being and our welfare. It's infinitely wise. It's infinitely good. We've agreed in the past that we've come to see some things that we prayed for earnestly and then later thanked God that He didn't give them to us. <laughs> right? Things that you just absolutely needed and prayed for and a month or a year later you just thank God. You, he said no. Thank you for that. He never prays that way. He always prays for exactly what we need in exactly the right way at exactly the right time. Infinitely wise. Infinitely good. Effectual. Always heard. The Father will not turn aside the prayer of His dear Son. And it's always for our best good. Every one of us, every one of God's elect, every believer in Jesus Christ will reach glory. And when we do, it will be because Christ interceded for us on the basis of His perfect, completed work. All glory will go to Him. So, in conclusion, we've got to agree with the uh, moving words of the godly Scottish pastor from the early 1800s, Robert Murray McShane. Listen to what McShane said. He said, I ought to study Christ the intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was to be most tempted. I am on his breastplate. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. It is not... So it, I asked simply in closing, is Jesus Christ your great high priest? If He is, then rejoice. Love Him. Thank God. Live boldly. Live trustingly. Seek Him with all your heart. 
Pray for God to light you with fire of ardor and love for Him and live your life in service and glorification of Him. But if He's not your great high priest, oh dear friend, what are you waiting for? Run to Him. He is exactly who you need. He is exactly who you need. And He calls today. Today, won't you come? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the glorious portrait it paints for us of the Lord Jesus Christ and His great high priestly work and intercession. And wonderful to know that He prays for us. Wonderful to know that He carries us on His shoulders and He carries us over His heart. And when you look at us, you see Him. You see, and, and, and like the Israelites who could only come into your very presence because they were hanging, as it were, on the great high priest, we come into your presence because we're hanging on the great high priest. He opened the way to us. The way is opened by the, the, uh, the giving of his flesh. And so we boldly, gladly come through to you to worship you now, knowing that we have one who stands for us before you. Our surety, our guarantee, our mediator, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.